0: You may or may not remember me. Uh, my wife Diana and I regularly attend this service, but to be honest, we attend the first service. But I have preached a few times at this service, so I hope I'm not too foreign to you. Um, it is a privilege to be here and share. It's wonderful to be in God's house, and I, it's a privilege that Mark is inviting me back when he's on vacation this summer. Let us begin with prayer. May the words of my mouth and the thoughts of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Hear now God's word. First from the Psalms number 100. Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Worship the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful songs. Know that the Lord is God. It is he who made us and we are his people, the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and praise him for the Lord is good and his love endures forever. His faithfulness continues through all generations. And then from the Gospel of John, chapter 4, this is the end of a conversation Jesus is having with a Samaritan woman at Jacob's well, starting at verse 19. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when, the, when true worshipers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshiper the Father seeks. God is spirit. And his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. And then from Paul's letter to the Romans, we read these two verses. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Amen. Hearing those verses, what is worship? If we were to do a word association game for the word worship, and you said the first word that came into your mind what would it be? For many, that first word may be singing. Other words associated with worship are praise, prayer, preaching, listening, silence, and the sacraments. I want to suggest to you this morning that worship may incorporate all of those things and more, but worship is not synonymous with any one of those things. To put it another way, you can do all of those things without worshiping. In fact, conversely, you can worship without doing any of those things. The common Hebrew word for worship in the Old Testament is used 71 times, and it literally means to bow down with reverence and respect. In the New Testament, the Greek equivalent is found, seven, is found 48 times, mainly of people coming and bowing before Jesus, and worshiping him. This reflects the meaning of the English word worship, which literally means worth ship, to ascribe worth to someone. To help us answer this question of what worship is, let's go back to the story of Jesus from John 4 that starts off very mundanely. Jesus is on his way back to Galilee from Judea and he is tired. So he sits down by a well as his disciples go off to find some food. And as Jesus is sitting there, a woman comes up to get some water from the well. Nothing too exciting so far. Which Jesus changes rather dramatically by even speaking to this woman. That action itself was going against the flow of the culture at that time and he tells her everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again but whoever drinks the water i give them will never thirst indeed the water i give them will become in them a water of a spring of water welling up to eternal life she is somewhat unsure and confused by what jesus is actually saying yet she knows somehow he is different and she wants to hear more and she says I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus now does the extraordinary in the middle of the ordinary when he states these most incredible words about the most incredibly sacred activity of God's people, worship, to a most surprising person. Let's not rush too fast to hear his words for who jesus says these words to are almost as significant as the words themselves he states this to a woman in a highly male dominated culture from a race of people that were of no good to the jews imagine the hatred between serbs and muslims in modern bosnia the enmity between Catholics and Protestants in Northern Ireland, or the feuding between street gangs in any major US city. And you have some idea of the feeling and its causes between Jews and Samaritans in the time of Jesus. Both politics and religion were involved. So this woman, this Samaritan, who also was living a scandalous life, she had been married five times and was now living with a man, which proved that she was useless and someone that you could just ignore and walk on by, Jesus invites this woman to experience God in true worship. Woman, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. By inviting this woman, Jesus is inviting all to worship God. It does not matter who you are, what you are, or what you have done. All can worship the Father. It is no longer about what mountain you worship at, or what city or what place. It's not about form. It's not about ritual. It's all about the heart. Rather than being an external thing, worship is going to be in the depths of the heart. Jesus says here in John 4 that true worship happens in the spirit and in truth. The truth of who God the Father is and who we are in him. Jesus is breaking decisively from all outward forms as a definition of what worship is. It's not about holy days. It's not about seasons or feasts or festivals. It's not about ritual or rites. All which can be very useful if they lead us to a place where we know that God dwells within us. Each of us are the sanctuary of God. Indeed, whatever we do, whether we eat, whether we drink, We are meant to do it to the glory of God. This is where Paul is extremely helpful when he writes in Romans, verse 1, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. That, I believe, is worship in a nutshell. The best definition of worship I can find in all of Scripture. Paul says to these Christians in Rome, I urge you, I beg you, I implore you. You choose to do it. Yet that choice is only possible when it is in response to the mercies of God. Look at the verse. I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. That is your true and proper worship. The only way we truly worship is in response to who God is, what he has done, what he has said in his word. It is in response to his person, his grace, and his greatness. What is Paul talking about? These mercies of God that we respond to by laying down our lives. Let me give you a quick summary of the book of Romans. ...and tell you that the first 11 chapters have been leading to this first verse in chapter 12. The whole book hinges on this verse. I would encourage each of you to sit down sometime and read all 11 chapters of Romans at once... ...and see the totality of what Paul is saying, of what he's getting at. He is saying, look at what God has done for you... It is the power of God into salvation, first to the Jew and also the Greek. It will transform people's lives. It will turn the world upside down. When you read the first 11 chapters of Romans, you will be bombarded by the wonderful mercies of God. You will read about justification. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God. We are justified by his blood. It talks about, how we are adopted and we become heirs, joint heirs with Jesus, and we are adopted into God's family. Now that we have a spirit of adoption rising up within us, it's not a spirit of fear any longer, but the spirit of God's Son rising up, crying, Abba, Father. We are in the family. We are in Christ. Look at how many times you find that phrase in Romans, in Christ. We are identified with Jesus Christ. We are identified with his death. We are identified with his burial. We are identified with his resurrection. We are no longer under the law, but we are under his grace. Jesus Christ has set us free from the law of sin and death. We have received the gift of the indwelling of the Spirit of God. God lives within us now. We have help in affliction. His Spirit interprets the groanings within the deep parts of our soul when we can't even pray to God with words that can be uttered. We read about how the great election and the purpose of God are in the life of the church. We read about the certainty of the coming glory that whatever we're going through right now, the suffering of this world is not worthy to be compared with what will be revealed in us in a day that is yet to come. It talks about the confidence that we have that we will never ever as children of God be separated from God. That nothing can separate us in heaven, earth, or hell from His love, not even death. Paul is saying that because of all these mercies, because of all these blessings, we offer our bodies as a living sacrifice. We are no longer bringing sacrifices to God. It's not bringing a sacrifice it's being a sacrifice the sacrifice is you that's true worship I think one of the best definitions is given by Warren Worsby where he says worship is the believer's response to all that they are mind emotion will and body to what God is and says he does as we explore The Psalm. Pay close attention to all the actions that occur. You will see that while God is willing to meet us anywhere and at any place and at any time, we need to come into His presence with hearts, mind, and body and soul and acknowledge the presence of the King. Psalm 100 shows us the pathway into God's presence, it starts with a bang. Shout for joy to the Lord all the earth. The original word signifies a glad shout or to give a blast or as, a, as on a trumpet, such as a loyal subjects would give when their king appears among them. When we come to worship, our agenda is to meet God. God's agenda is to meet with us. We raise our voices to get his attention. This is not being rude or disrespectful. We walk down the path to worship God. We simply cannot be quiet. We are not raising our voices to draw attention to ourselves. We shout for joy because the Lord is among us. Worship the Lord with gladness. The psalmist here speaks of a specific and personal activity of praising God. We glorify God by ascribing to him the honor and adoration due him because he is God. The Puritans called it, nothing else but rendering to God the honor that is due him. A.J. Tozer gave a more expanded meeting. He said that God wants to cultivate within us the adoration and admiration of which he is worthy. He wants us to be astonished at the inconceivable elevation and magnitude and splendor of Almighty God. Come before him with joyful songs. Our shouts will turn to songs. Music is the form through which we often express our gladness, our joy, our praise. Our songs are not meant to create gladness, but to express it. Through our songs, we approach God. It is a fit anticipation of heaven. There are 575 references to praise, singing, and music found in the Bible. From the beginning, singing has been an essential link between God and his children, Throughout history, music has played an important and essential part of the worship of God. The danger, I fear, is that in many churches and for many individuals, instead of worshiping God, we are worshiping the music. I have been in some church service where the music and singing are described as the worship part of the service, and the rest somehow is not worship. Music alone is not worship. Music prepares the heart and sets the stage for us to encounter God. Music is a sacrifice of praise, not a synonym for music. Acknowledge that the Lord is God. Here we pause to recognize that we are entering into the presence of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Here we acknowledge that Jesus is our Savior and submit to him as Lord. We remind ourselves as to whom God is, and at the same time we remind We're reminded of who we are. He is the creator. We are the created. He is the shepherd. We are the sheep. We are completely dependent on him for everything. In other words, he is God and we are not. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Drawing an analogy from a temple, the psalmist knows that at... informs us how we can open the very door into God's presence. As we enter God's presence, open the doors with thanksgiving. It is here we thank God for what he has done. Once through the gates, the worshiper enters the courts with praise. One gets a sense of movement from outside to inside and moving closer to the presence of God. We come before God with thanksgiving and praise on our lips and in our hearts. Verse 4 continues, praise his name. The essence of his being, his all-compassing nature, his very person, his resolute character is summed up in God's name. All of God is embodied in his name. He is the object of our worship. Take a quick look at this slide of the name of God. All of those are incredibly awesome. What do we know about the name? The psalmist reminds us that the Lord is good. He is gracious and kind. His love is eternal. The word for love means covenant love. God has bound us to himself in a covenant or contract that he will never revoke or abandon. His faithfulness endures through all generations, God is not fickle or forgetful. He does not change His purpose or break His word. The name of God reminds us of the greatness, holiness, wisdom, goodness, loving kindness, and truthfulness of God. The essence of worship is to bless, to fall down, and to ascribe glory to the name of God. We have to remember that our language betrays us at times. We use the same word about church and worship as we use for every other thing we do. We go to the movies. We go to the theater. We go to the play. We go to the concert. We go to the sporting event. And we also go to church. And if we're not careful and intentional we start to react and think that everything we go to, including when we go to church, are the same. We start to think that when we go to church, we are there to be entertained. We are there for our pleasure. It is said of our culture that most middle-class Americans tend to worship their work, work at their play, and play at their worship. When we play at worship, When we treat God as a hobby or a distraction from the routines of work and play, too many of us come waiting to get, generally setting for what makes us feel good or makes us happy. One author is very helpful when he says, worship has been misunderstood as something that arises from a feeling which comes upon you. But it is vital that we understand that it is rooted in a conscious act of the will to serve and obey the Lord Jesus Christ. Chris Tomlin put it like this, Worship is where God isn't moved by the quality of our voices, but by the condition of our hearts. The heart of the matter is the matter of the heart. Matt Redmond, who might best be known for the song 10,000 Reasons, lived in Watford, England, and the church he attended was going through a dry period, and they were just missing some dynamic in their spiritual life as a congregation, and they looked closely at their worship service. The pastor and the leaders of this congregation did a very brave thing in the midst of this wilderness period. They got rid of the sound system, the piano, the organ, and all instruments. This is what Matt Redman said. We gathered together with just our voices. The point was that we had lost our way in worship, and the way to get back to the heart would be to strip away everything. The pastor reminded the people to be producers of worship, not just consumers of worship. He asked them the question, when you come through the doors on Sunday, what are you bringing as an offering to God? Not the money you put in the trays when they are passed. What are each of you as a worshiper bringing? He realized that they were coming to take, to receive, rather than to give. Matt says that question initially led to some embarrassing silence on Sunday mornings. No music. But eventually, people broke into a cappella songs and heartfelt prayers, encountering God in a fresh way. Before long, they reintroduced the musicians. They weren't against them or the sound systems, but when they stripped all of that away they gained a new perspective that worship is all about the heart and it's all about jesus matt redmond wrote a song that is now sung around the globe based on this experience here is a portion of that song
1: when the music fades all is stripped away and i simply come Longing just to bring Something that's of worth That will bless your heart I'll bring you more than a song For a song in itself Is not what you have required such much deeper within through the way things appear You're looking into my heart I'm coming back to the heart of worship and it's all about You It's all about You, Jesus I'm sorry
0: to matt redmond in his church is not something new in the life of the church john calvin greatly simplified the use of music in worship in comparison with the music developments of the late medieval period calvin eliminated choirs and musical instruments from public worship the only music in worship was congregational singing unaccompanied by musical instruments The simplicity of singing and the unity of the congregation was best preserved, Calvin believed, by singing in unison. Singing was a basic element of worship for Calvin because he saw singing as a particularly heartfelt way to pray. He said, as for public prayers, there are two kinds, the ones with word alone and the others with singing. In fact, the term a cappella which now has the common definition of without instruments, is an Italian musical term with the original meaning of in the style of the church. I'm not advocating the removal of instruments or choirs. The point I'm trying to make is that worship is the responsibility of all who gather. The most significant benefit of worship is connecting with God. One of the greatest needs among the church today is not a new program, a new seminar, or a new study. What is needed today is an encounter with God. We desperately need a life-changing glimpse of the greatness, the awesomeness, the wonder, the power, the mercy, the goodness, and the loving kindness of God. With that definition in mind, we don't worship God for what we get out of it, but to give God the honor that is due Him recognizing his worth his value his place in our church and his claim on our lives worship therefore is not a weekly pep talk to rally the troops worship is not a motivational seminar to make us feel good about ourselves worship is not the christian alternative to a saturday night rock concert or a beethoven symphony worship occurs when people encounter God who loves them and desires a relationship with them. One author put it succinctly, worship is a meeting between God and his people. Worship does not lead to an encounter with God. It is an encounter with God. When we worship God, whether on our own or with others, we come with an agenda to meet with God. And as important as that is, we need to remember that God has an agenda as well to meet with us. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen.